Welcome to the Desert Sun Podcast with me, your host, Tim Newman. I'm also the author of the blog, White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. This week, I have with me a gentleman by the name of Ben Sixsmith, who is, I believe, an Englishman, an English writer living in Poland. So, Ben, can you just uh, tell us how you came to be in Poland? Yeah, I graduated from university and couldn't think of what job I should be doing. So uh, some people in my family were English teachers in England and abroad. So I studied English as a foreign language. Uh, I wanted to go to Japan. That completely failed, thankfully. Uh, And I was sending lots of applications and getting nowhere. And I was about to give up and then... I woke up one morning and had a random email from some bloke in Poland saying, do you want to come and work at my school in this obscure town? And for lack of options, I agreed, but it turned out to be a great decision. And I've been here for several years since. That's awesome. Because Actually, funny you should mention that you applied to Japan, because probably my next guest is going to be a guy who has just finished several years teaching English in Japan. Uh-huh. So it might actually it might be interesting to compare the experiences. Actually, oh, that's quite um, uh, that's quite a stroke of fortune. So, so you're not actually in a major city in Poland. Are you, are you in the east? Are you in the west? I'm in the south. I'm in Silesia. I've heard uh, of that. Why do I know that? What's what's that famous for? Uh, well, it was it was kind of a disputed territory for many years with Ukraine. Germany and- and then it also had independence movements. So, ah, okay. Uh, it's always been a kind of fractious area politically. So your uh, your your job is teaching English to to whom? Uh, to people of all ages who need to know English academically or professionally, or just for pleasure. Uh, so a huge variety of people in my town. Okay, so so you're are you are you are you part of a school? Are you part of a university, or are you just completely freelance? No, I'm part of a school. Okay. Uh, I think I, I'm pretty sure I'm one of only two English people in my town. So that's what I was going to say. Yeah, there there can't be much of an expat life there. So so how have you integrated with the locals? Do you speak Polish? I speak some Polish, really quite shamefully bad Polish. I'm quite embarrassed about it. I've been. <laughs> making belated efforts to learn Polish with the aid of Duolingo. Uh, the, fir- the first year I was here, I knew pretty much nobody because uh, I wasn't really going out, or if I was going out, I wasn't trying to connect with people. Right. Uh, and then I had the good luck to meet a barman, and I became friends with that guy, and I found out that if you ever want to make friends in a new city, the best person to make friends with is a barman because they he, introduce you to everybody. And he's a local? Uh, yeah, he's a local. And then he introduced me to lots of other younger people. And uh, lots of young people here have very good English. So 
I quickly picked up friends I could talk to. And that was probably bad for my Polish because lots of people are excited to have the chance to speak English because it's good practice. And yes. They can develop their skills. I hope that's not the only reason they're friends with me. But <laughs> well, it's, it's you, an added bonus. You, I think a lot of people find that. And it's actually this... It can be a bit frustrating when you go to a foreign country and you really want to learn their language, but you meet people who they really want to practice their English with you. Mm. So, uh, oh, I don't really know how it works. I mean, I've most of the places I've lived, they've spoken English and probably better than, well, to a higher level than um, just people needing to, to practice. But you do find that occasionally. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I guess you'd be pretty... Any, any foreigner who turns up there speaking Polish would be very unusual, I guess. Yeah, I'd, I've met a couple of foreigners who have good Polish, but really not many. Uh, but be, because there isn't an expat community in my town, it also makes you kind of more unusual, so... That's a good way of meeting people as well, because you've automatically got a conversation starter. And, and you've never been tempted to, once you're there and you were settled, to sort of use that as a stepping stone to go to Warsaw or one of the or one of the bigger cities. You didn't think, right, well, you know, now I'm here, I can look for a job in somewhere else and hang out with expats. You were quite happy to stay where you were. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love my town. Um I wouldn't want to leave it unless I had a great reason to. Uh, I'm a, I'm pretty I'm a pretty small town guy, like not not small town as in, you know, a farm with a ranch <laughs> and you never see anyone. But uh, anywhere that I can walk around, I'm happy with, and anywhere I would have to take a bus or a taxi, uh, I would get sick of fairly quickly. So there are beautiful big cities that I like visiting. Yeah, but I've never been especially tempted to live there. There are advantages of living in tiny places. I mean, I've lived in—I haven't lived in a massive, massive city. Um, Paris isn't a big city, but by global standards, I've never lived in even in London or Moscow or Tokyo, one of these giant cities. But I've lived in reasonably sized cities, Manchester and Paris, and I've lived in tiny places. And although tiny places can get a bit dull, there's something great about being able to get across town in five minutes. Yeah. And I think there's something... I feel like... Obviously, this wouldn't be true for everyone, but if you're living in a big city, there's a tendency to develop a kind of thirst for novelty. And you're always trying out the next new thing. Whereas in a small place, I enjoy... Um, kind of immersing myself in the character of the place and you really have to get to know people because there aren't that many other people you're going to meet well you can build you can build relations in a small a small town especially if it's not a very transient place one of the problems i had in dubai was it was so transient everybody was there for five minutes then they were off again so it's very hard to form any kind of you know, lasting friendships or relations because everybody had their eye on the exit door. The first question is how long are you sticking around? And everybody was, oh, I'll do another six months. I'll do a bit longer. And in Paris, it was similar as well for a lot of people, you know, a lot of expats there who weren't going to be there permanently. Um, and I suppose if you're in a small town, you can actually start to develop proper lasting relationships and friendships. 
Yeah, I, I certainly think so. Uh, obviously, you still have the same issues with people moving and just relationships breaking down. And well, uh, that's the so other problem. But... If if your relationship goes wrong, you can't hide in a small town. That's the other problem, I suppose. Oh yeah, I remember talking to a friend of mine in my second or third year here, and I said that one of the things I loved about the town was. Uh, you can walk into a bar and be sure you're going to see someone you know. Ooh, that, that's a good thing and a bad thing. And he said, yeah, the problem is you walk into a bar and you see people you just don't want to know. Yeah, which, which you don't, you don't it's, get it's, I Paris. mean, it's not a small, small town. There's like 50,000 people living here, so... It sounds a bit, uh, it's probably similar to the size of, size of Annecy. I mean, I'm not even sure what the population of Annecy is, but it's not a big town. I mean, at peak hour, you get a bit of traffic, but there's something... Something I quite like about, you know, being able to just nip into town, go and do something, come back. And when I was living in Sakhalin, uh, that what was good about that, you could, you could go across town, kind of forget something, drive home, get it, come back, and you've lost 10 minutes at the most. <laughs> Whereas if you live in London and you go out and you forget something, well, <laughs> you oh, better, yeah. yeah, forget it. The day's gone. So how, how are the polls in general? Are they, because I don't, to be honest, I don't know any polls. I've met very few. I have been to Poland, but very briefly, and I can't honestly say I know any polls. And the ones I've mm. met are probably second generation, so not representative. But are they very open? Are they very welcoming? Can you get to know them easily? Do they invite you back to their house? I mean, the... I, I, one of the problems with living here, as long as I have, is it becomes harder to draw generality generalizations. Right. Like, I think after my first year here, I was very confident that I really understood the Polish character. Right. But then when you're here and you meet enough people, you start to think, well, was that the Polish character or was it a Polish character? Okay. Um, because there is a, there's a huge variety of people here, as in any... Uh, country from very conservative, reserved people to very liberal, open people. But I would say, if I had to draw a generalization, it's that Polish people seem less friendly than they are. Because you don't get, like, if you walk into a shop, you're unlikely to get a smile. Definitely, if you walk down the street, you're not going to get a smile from a stranger. Uh, if you walk into a bar, people can seem quite standoffish. But when you actually have an opportunity to talk somewhat to someone, the ice melts very quickly. That sounds similar to uh, it, it is in, well, Russia and Ukraine and probably mm. a lot of Eastern Europe. There's a lot of sort of, um, they're very guarded because of the uh, Soviet, the, uh, the communist days. Mm. Yeah, so they're not immediately open. But I... on. My podcast with Mike, who lives in uh, in Switzerland, we had this discussion that we I found that in general the Russians were very very open once you get to know them and very quickly you're brought back to their house you're plied with vodka and salted fish and the whole family's there they just don't mind about bringing strangers home whereas again in general this is big generalizations here but in France they're a lot mm. more closed off. It's very, very difficult to get an invitation back to a Frenchman's house where you come in, meet the family, stay for dinner, hang out, drinking, and then you go home whenever. 
it, it's just not in their culture to do that with strangers. But with Russians, they do. They're very open about that. Yeah, Poles are quite open about uh, introducing you to people, inviting you into their homes. Overall, overall very welcoming. But I, I think one of the things, this is a theory I had for a long time. I don't know if it's true, but I like coming up with um, unproven theories and pretending that uh, they're deep. But I, I, I think that one of, one of the things I've noticed in the former Soviet countries is outside the house, they were basically property of the state. They had no way to express themselves. There was no way to really show people who they were. So all that mm. had to be done in the apartment. And the apartment was really a place where people's individuality and personality could come out far more than, uh, than on the street or at work or, or anywhere else. And so inviting somebody into your home was sort of very important because you could actually, people could then get an idea of who you were. And I've never seen a bigger contrast than outside the front door of a Russian's house where it's a complete communal shithole and inside where it's really nice it's warm it's clean it's very welcoming and this huge contrast i think was um this i worked out or i think i did that this was their way of sort of showing what kind of people they are like look come to my house and now you will see the real us so they were quite keen for people to step outside this cold uniform exterior run by the state into their house where where you could actually get to know them whereas obviously in places like france or britain or switzerland there wasn't a requirement for that that's my theory anyway yeah that could be a factor i mean long, long before uh long before they had communism poles had partition where uh they were even discouraged from speaking polish at all outside the house oh right uh, yeah okay so so what were they supposed to speak? Um, I mean, there were attempts to push the various languages of the partitioning countries like uh, German, Austrian, Russian. Okay. I don't think this was ever like militantly enforced because it was a very impractical idea. Yeah. And I'd also be lying if I claim to be an expert on that aspect of the history. Uh, but the, the teaching of Polish was definitely discouraged and there was more emphasis on the surrounding languages, uh, because which it, is why literature became so important for Poles because it was a way of preserving the national heritage. And I'm sure it's why uh, communal life inside the home became more important because you could express yourself as you wished. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting about uh, the languages because when I've looked at the former Soviet states, now I know that Poland wasn't one, but it was uh, it was it was uh, Eastern Bloc. But mm. you look at Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. Very few, even natives, spoke the native language. Generally, if you meet a Kazakh, even now, their first language is really Russian. Same with mm. Uzbeks and Kyrgyz. But if you go to the Baltic states like Lithuania, unless your parents were ethnic Russians, they all spoke Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian. So it seems that in some countries, Russian really did push out the local language, 
and they got everybody speaking Russian. But in other in other countries, it wasn't as successful. I'm sure there's reasons for that, but uh, it, it, there is a difference depending on which country they attempted it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, funny how with the older people in Poland, they often remember Russian from their school days. And then with the younger people who went to school after communism, they don't know. They don't consciously know a word in Russian. Uh, that was exactly what I, I found in Latvia. Yeah. She'd lived in Russia for several years. She had a great time chatting with pensioners and older people, making me feel outsider because I couldn't speak to them in any language. This was your sister, you said? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, because I, 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 uh, I was in Vilnius in Lithuania, which I, I discovered very belatedly used to be a Polish town. And there's the big rivalry up there where it's between Estonians and Latvians, but that's kind of a friendly one. But between Lithuanians and Poles, there's a really big rivalry due to the, I mean, Lithuania used to have a huge empire, then it was Polish and, and this kind of thing. But Vilnius, I didn't realize, used to be a Polish city. So you get a lot of ethnic Poles in there. And I went to a market where I tried to get some Polish sausage or some kind of sausage for somebody back in France. And... I went in there and there was this old woman and I spoke to her in English, nothing. I don't know any Lithuanian. I don't know if she did. So I tried Russian and she spoke that. So I went, okay, this will do. So I, I, I spoke to her in Russian. So yeah, you can find the older people. Um, and that's right. Yeah, when I was in Warsaw railway station trying to buy a ticket to Kiev, I did that in Russian. Yeah, but that was back in 2005. Yeah, in the, in the, um, I went to the counter and I said, do you speak English? She said, no, I asked her in Russian. And she said, yeah. So I ordered it in very, very, very bad Russian, you know. So, yeah, you can get by. Um, so do, do they speak German where you are? Uh, some people speak German. And so, I mean, they, there's definitely... There's lots of historical roots with Germany, but much less prominent than they used to be because most of the ethnic Germans were forcibly removed after World War Two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just an enormous uh, strategy of population removal. So there are far fewer people who are ethnically German. But there are some people, and then there are lots of people who have family in Germany. Uh, so it's not anywhere near as common as English, but there are people who speak German as a second language. And I'm, I'm guessing, yeah, as you said, that the younger generation are just desperate to learn English and they don't really care about any other language. It's, it, it's by far the most popular language to learn. There's still German, a bit of French, a bit of Spanish, but overall English because it, it doesn't even have to be to go to England it's because if you go to a country like the Netherlands, everyone will speak to you in English. Uh, lots of businesses here, it's required that employees speak English because they're dealing with uh, international clients. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, so it, everything's international now. If any of these kids want to go and work in Warsaw in a bank... Knowing English, it means that they can do assignments abroad. It means they get assigned to projects where there's visiting people from. I mean, I mean, if, if somebody from a, I don't know, a Spanish bank comes to Warsaw to do some work, well, he'll be speaking English. 
Yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. you know, it open it opened so many doors, and uh, you know, I, I've argued about this on my blog before that really, um, and I I know French very well now. My Russian's pretty good, but they're other than socialising and some practical stuff when you're trying to get paperwork sorted out, dealing with the government. To be honest, in terms of business, languages are pretty much useless except for English. I mean, English is yeah, just such an outlier. For better or worse, I think that's probably true. I mean, there are three obligatory subjects that you study all the way through school in Poland, and that's Polish, maths, and English. Yeah. Whereas it's inconceivable that in England or America... You would well, maybe less so America. Maybe in the future they'll have obligatory Spanish, but it's inconceivable in England we'd have obligatory French or obligatory Spanish all the way through school. But the, but it would the, just be the thing is, okay. is that the polls, like all the non-native English speakers, have the the biggest question answered for them: What language do you learn? I mean, mm. they can they can learn English, and it is immediately useful. No yeah. matter where they go, who they meet, they can immediately start using it. And if they devote five, six thousand hours when they're teenagers or in their 20s to learning English, they will reap massive rewards. But if you do that, supposing, yeah, I, I learned Russian. Well, it's kind of useful in Russia, but I live in France now. Well, Russian's no use here. Absolutely useless, you know, unless you happen to meet a Russian and you, you know, have a bit of a chat. And it's a nice thing to do socially. But it's... It's the same as if, you know, all the school kids learning French and then you get offered a job in Germany. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not much use. Whereas you learn English, oh, it's immediately useful. It's, it's, it always will be. I mean, anywhere you go, you can go to Vietnam, you can go to Brazil. It'll be useful. Mm. Um, which is good for guys like you who are teaching it, I guess. So, uh, so how do you find that? Are you, um, what do you do if you don't speak Polish? How do you explain anything? So I, I have some Polish. Like if I go into a shop, um, I'm not going to be kind of desperately pointing at things. I'm able to order things or just basic conversation on the street, like giving directions, uh, small talk. But when you're teaching, I mean, when you have to teach people who don't know any English, how do you teach them English without knowing well, Polish? Well, our school has a system where... You have an English teacher and a Polish teacher and the Polish teacher gives you the grammar and then the English teacher gives you vocabulary and communication skills. Right. So that helps. Yes. We don't get like the earliest students. Uh, I wouldn't be teaching four-year-olds, so they have some kind of base. Right. Even if it's only um, very basic phrases. And then also you can just kind of, you can convey things without explaining them through language. Sure. Use pictures, drawing pictures of farm animals on the board and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then again, if I, I, I would try not to use Polish in lessons because it encourages them to use it as a crutch. But I have good enough Polish that I can talk to elementary students in elementary Polish. Uh, so no, it's if good. for some reason I can't convey the word dog, I can say pies. Okay. Uh, and then once they get past that elementary stage, you don't really need to, you don't need to use their language. Uh, yeah, I, I guess so. Look, I mean, this is what I hear from people. I know, 
I know people who've taught Korean and Japanese, and I'm pretty sure they don't know much of the the local language. It's obviously possible. I, I've never, I've not really had any formal language. Well, I have had formal language training, but it was a two week, very very intense uh, French course when I first arrived in France but I've never actually mm. sat for a long time in lessons to see how it's done I've basically taught myself most of it but uh, mm. that's good so um, so you're there are you going to be affected by by Brexit at all do you have to or have you already got some kind of residency card so you're not that bothered I mean one of the problems is I mean I don't have a residency card um, I'm thinking about applying for citizenship but I think my Polish has to get better first. But as soon as soon as I think I can pass the language test, I'll apply for citizenship. And how long have you been there? Uh, five years, which is the... Well, five and a half now, but five years is the minimum. Yeah, see, see my five years is uh, January the 10th. So I've just been looking just yesterday, actually, that the, the French Ministry of Interiors put all this advice for Brexit up. So telling everybody they need to apply for residency cards um, and warning. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's actually they're, they're dealing with it. They're, um, the French are kind of uh, quite proactive. Well, the thing is, all they're doing is saying, well, this is what everyone else does. So just follow the same process. I mean, everybody who's a non-EU citizen has to get a residency card. With, oh, yeah. And they're just saying, well, go and do this. So this idea that they need to suddenly, you know, the whole thing's a mess and no one knows what's going on. They basically said to all Brits, well, go down the local immigration, their equivalent of immigration office and hand in a few forms. And OK, it'll be slow and painful because it's France and every every individual you deal with will have a different interpretation of the requirements. But you do that. So in January, I'm going to apply for my permanent residence um, because that will be five years. And, and I could, in theory, apply for citizenship, but I think that'll take a lot longer to come through. And just to get through yeah. this Brexit mess, I'm just going to... Uh, I'll get my permanent residency and then at my leisure, I can then get, get citizenship if I need it. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I'll probably look into residency as well. Uh, I've had such a crazy few months with other things. I haven't really thought about it except as this dark thought on the back of my mind that it's coming but they're not going to kick anyone out they're not going to kick anyone out i mean all these people going oh you know it's going to be terrible it'll be a nightmare they're not going to kick anybody out they're not going to be rounding you up at the point of a bayonet like they did with the germans and <laughs> right yeah. off you go you know that's that's just simply not going to happen no i don't think so i mean imagine how many eu citizens are living in britain it would be I mean, it would if they if if it, I think it's unimaginable. But even if they tried to imagine it, it would be kind of it would be on the level of historical population removals. Well, it would. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if the Polish government have issued instructions. I guess I'm going to have to find out and uh, apply for residency. But, but I, yeah, like you say, there's been in Poland there have been two million Ukrainians who've had to do something similar. So. Uh, it's not really too much to ask to expect us to do it as well. Exactly, and they can they can they can kind of fast track it. And and the thing is, um, I said this on my other podcast. What people don't seem to realise, you can't just show up in an EU country and decide I'm living here. To to um, what do they say? To realise your rights as an EU citizen, you have to be working or studying. 
you can't just turn up and decide, well, I'm living here. Um, mm. You have to, yeah, have to be working, studying or retiring, but you have to demonstrate that in each case. If you're working, you need to show an employment contract, studying the attestation from the university. And if you're retired, you have to show you have medical insurance plus enough money to support yourself. So mm. you have to do this anyway. And even though mm -hmm. no one will check, I mean, in theory, you can, you can come to France, get a house, and just sit around and no one will ever ask you for documents. But in theory, you're supposed to actually have all that. And if you want to get anything done, you kind of have to start demonstrating some of this stuff. So if the requirement is now just to formalize that and you have to, you have to give all these documents to the local prefecture, yeah, it's a pain in the ass. Same as doing anything with the state is a pain in the ass. But it's not like they're imposing sort of huge new requirements you always had to demonstrate to the the local government that you're uh taking advantage of your rights by working studying or or retiring you couldn't just turn up and decide right well, i'm just going to loaf around here yeah i mean that there's there's an element of paranoia i mean i'm a nervous guy anyway so am i so I'm actually nervous about change uh there's an element of nervousness, I think, because I've been here so long, when you realize that you don't really have the necessary right to stay, as you would in your own country, which I'm not bitter about. It's not as if I feel I'm entitled to have the essential right to stay. But it definitely makes me uh, more existentially uh, nervous. No, I can, but, I can understand that. Um, but it's... Um... Look, I mean, I've worked in a lot of countries. I have no right to to work it to be in without a work permit, and and I've committed to France. I mean, I own an apartment here. I've got a lot of stuff wrapped up here. But the way I see it is okay. It's going to be unless something goes badly wrong, and they really are shooting Brits up against the wall or forcing them at a bayonet down the Channel Tunnel. Um, it's just going to be a bureaucratic exercise, which might be painful. And it might be long and there might be some uncertainty, but, you know, you, OK, in this is the price of really living abroad, I suppose. Yeah, it, I mean, it is. You can't expect everything to come comfortably. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to get my car insurance cancelled at the moment in France. I tell you what, that is a bureaucratic nightmare. I mean, that, that's... Yeah, I set, up yeah. A, I set up a business here earlier this year and that was a, a right pain in the ass, but... Uh, but did you get it open in the end? Or, or is it one of these places they make you pay taxes up front? Uh, they do for health. Um, oh, I don't mind that. They don't, they, don't, they don't charge you sort of like your, your equivalent of corporation tax up front before you've even turned a dollar. Oh, before you've even That's what they do in France. I think they do. This is oh, what I've no, been told. You set up a company, no. they work out a hypothetical first year income and go, right, cough up, matey. Oh, Christ, no, they don't do that, thank God. <laughs> I dread to think what the hypothetical income would be compared to the, the real income. No, I've heard, that, I've heard they do this in, in Greece and other places. I mean, Switzerland's the place to set up a business, but you have to be resident there, and I'm not, unfortunately. Because so, uh, I could actually do with setting up a business because I've, uh, you know, I've got the millions coming in from my book sales and my podcasts and the advertising on my blog. You know, it's uh, it's it would be nice to gain some relief on this, but it's um, and and just do some general commercial consulting at some point. But I'm looking at what it takes to open a business. But uh, so 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 you yeah, are, sounds, go on. That sounds painful. I set up a business 
for freelance writing because before that I was refusing uh, lots of payments and it meant I could accept the money, get everything above board and uh, just have something to build on in the future. And it means I'm not really doing it at the moment, but it means I could do private lessons as well if I wanted to. Oh. Yeah, I actually, I actually looked at opening the business in part to do some freelance writing because, you know, I've got a few sort of very low level commercial activities that I could get involved with, I am involved with. And it'd be nice just to have some kind of way of separating that out so that I can claim some tax relief on it and some expenses against it. Like, for example, my book, I got edited. That cost me $1,600. Mm. Um, cause I got it professionally done and the, mm. the front cover cost me $500 and that was money well spent. That was the best thing about the book. Um, so I thought at the time it'd be good just to open a small, small private business, just to run some of these things through perfectly legitimately. But then, yeah, to do it in France looks like an absolute pain in the ass. So uh, I, no, I might I mean, do Paul it. does have a great reputation for, um, like personal entrepreneurship but it sounds much easier than france or greece so yeah uh, i got lucky there because so so your your what's your plan then you you because i'm not sure how i mean okay this will come on. i was about to say something will come off the wrong way i was about to say um i'm not sure how much of a, a freelance writer you are i mean i know you write some very good stuff because i've read it but um ha- have you been doing it a long time is it something you're sort of you started in your growing or what, what is it uh, no, I haven't been doing it. For, I haven't been doing it for like other outlets for a long time. I did blogging for a long time, which was produced nothing of value, but was good practice. Tell, tell me why, because you told me the other day that you, you, you didn't think you were good at blogging. What, why is that? What, what do you think you weren't good at? Oh, I just had like miserable opinions. Uh, <laughs> you, you were doing this in Poland? Uh, no, this was when I lived in England. Right, yeah. Because, uh, again, what you could what you could have done, I mean, it depends how you want your blog to go, but me, I, I did very well in the days when I was living in interesting places and I was blogging about it. I mean, my blog really came to prominence when I was in Sakhalin and I was writing all the time about what I was seeing around me and that was great fun. So, you know, you could, you could have done that in Poland easily, but I guess it, it depends what you're into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was doing it just the usual political blogging, but for some of those years, I was quite left wing in a really terribly obnoxious way, like (laughs) just the worst kind of whiny little shit, Um, (laughs) disrespecting my elders and betters. So what year was this? Because, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm asking this question in a minute. But what year was this? When were you blogging? Uh, well, I was I had that phase from about 2008 to about 2010. And then I started becoming more conservative slowly, which was a good thing. But I was still writing kind of shit because I was just figuring stuff out. Because the, uh, the thing is, I'd, I'd actually not heard of you. Or maybe I had, but I'd forgotten. I don't know, because I'd been around the British blogosphere for a while, but it did take a dip between me leaving Sacklin in 2010 and 
through Nigeria, I found uh, it was difficult to write all the time. Um, so I kind of stepped out of the political blogging and uh, was just writing a lot of travel stuff. And I really ramped it up again in 2016 when I got a bit of a, a beer in my bonnet. But um, I really came across you when I joined Twitter. Mm. And I'm not exactly sure how, but I kept seeing your name come up. And you kept being retweeted. And it's this guy, Ben Sixsmith. Do I know that name? I mean, it sounds English. I've heard that name. And the thing is, you say you're left-wing, you've become more conservative. Honestly, now, after following you for... I don't know, probably more than a year, maybe two years now. I couldn't tell what your politics are. Because you don't seem to... You're certainly not on any extreme end. You don't seem to bang on about something. You seem to be pretty much well-balanced in the centre. I guess if I had to... If if there's ever been a movement I've been more sympathetic to than others, it would be uh, American paleoconservatism. Okay. Um, but obviously that is sufficiently America-centric that it wouldn't really make sense to call yourself a paleoconservative anywhere else. Well, no, so they wouldn't know what you're on about. They think you think something from the Natural History Museum. Uh. But uh, but that's the thing. I mean, a lot of especially people who are who are writers they really nail their political colours to the mast on places like Twitter. You're left in absolutely no doubt what team they support. You could ask them, if you were to approach them on any issue, you could tell pretty much straight away what their overall take would be. And I think you do quite a good job. And take this as a compliment, because it's actually quite refreshing that you're not just banging on about the same political points that if I approached you with any given policy I'm not sure how you'd respond because your politics aren't that obvious and I think actually that's quite a big thing about your appeal on Twitter appeal on Twitter that you're not sort of using whatever platform you have as a writer and anything else that people like about you to really daily go on and on about x y and z political positions yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't want to big myself up as a kind of special snowflake, which, yeah, I think snowflake used to mean like someone who thought of themselves as unique rather than someone who was terribly sensitive, but it's kind of shifted. Um, yeah, you're right. It has actually, yeah. Definitely, I've never, since I've started writing more seriously, I've never wanted to just kind of promote a particular ideology or... Uh, represent a particular political cause but just to write about things that interest me and I would never expect someone to come to me as the oracle of wisdom on all things but there are lots of subjects where I would just say I'm not fit to talk about this someone came to me and asked what my opinion was on uh, the yellow jackets in France and I just said I don't have one I don't know about don't really know anything about France worth saying see that's quite a, uh, that's quite unusual because especially as somebody who's trying to grow their career as a writer I mean most people and again don't take this the wrong way but most people would be you know they just pick up a half a dozen talking points and spout off about it I mean I, I've actually turned down 
various, you know, a couple of requests to say about something. I was asked to go on, uh, was it Russia Today or one of those, Sputnik maybe, about some oh, yeah. protest in France. And I just said, look, I've got nothing of value to say on this. I've got no idea. I mean, I'm in France, but let's not pretend I know why people are protesting. This was a few years ago, why people are protesting about I've got no idea. I'm, I live in a in the headquarters of an international oil company. I may as well be on Mars. But a lot of people, they feel that um, they have to weigh in on absolutely everything. Yeah. I think if I became that kind of pundit, I would lose just all joy for the process because I like investigating a particular issue and trying to, without wanting to sound too pretentious, trying to shed light on something that I feel has been overlooked deserves more attention a perspective that should be made uh whereas if i was trying to write in the sense of being a kind of brendan o'neillish owen jones-ish yeah you know what you're going to get if you send them an email it, it wouldn't be fun no and i think you'd also you might not lose uh followers but you would in terms of raw numbers but i think a lot of your current followers would leave and they'd be replaced by people well you'd, you'd basically have a different audience and it might be bigger and i dare say it'd be quite successful i imagine it's something that uh you know you could do quite successfully but like you say it wouldn't be fun um but i think yeah, you, yeah. You'd, you'd end up talking to worse people as well exactly i've got a friend on well you know twitter friend yeah uh, so God knows who he actually is, but he ha he wrote a thread this week which became enormously popular unexpectedly, and had hundreds of people who started following him. And I think he was quite put out because suddenly he had lots of idiots responding to all of his posts that he had to wade through, and he ended up mass blocking them all because he just didn't want to deal with them. Yeah, I mean, Twitter is uh, something... I hear a lot of complaints about Twitter. But actually, for me, it's been a very, very positive experience. Because I... Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah I, I think because you have to... You have to understand what it is and what it's for. Yeah, absolutely. You can't... And you can't... Also, you can't get too emotionally invested in it. Um, no, and... and I think, no. I think I said to you when we were messaging about this that... I became po more popular, or more, not even more popular, but just funnier and more insightful on Twitter when I stopped caring about kind of curating my account. Because I stopped feeling like I had to comment on everything and that I had to be very earnest and serious about everything. And because you... I could just make a joke if I wanted to and I could explore a thought if I wanted to and... Because you get some, uh, you get some pretty big people retweeting you and following you. I mean, there's some. Well, I say big. I'm not sure that Donald Trump's retweeting you, but you still you get a lot of, uh, you know, quite big hitters in the in the journalistic world. Doesn't Kathy Young follow you? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. And I've seen her retweeting you and replying and things. I mean, see, so you've and she's pretty well known. Um, in fact, that might be I how mean, I. Another reason yeah. that is. I had the good fortune to be one of the earliest contributors to Quillette, which has now taken off and become something of a phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of, I unconsciously, I think I must have ridden that bandwagon because when I'd write for them, I'd get a whole swathe of their followers 
uh, and I'd end up interacting with the people who write for them now who are much better known. Ah, uh, right. <clears throat> so that probably did a lot for me as well. Yeah, because, uh, in fact, I, I didn't, I don't know how, how long Colette's been going. I obviously know it now because I see it a lot and I follow them. And, uh, yeah, I think it's great what they're doing. And I think it's um, sorely needed, that's for sure. I'm not sure that, I think there is a little bit of myth making going on, you know, this whole intellectual dark web thing. They're making, a few people are making it all out to be something that it's not. But I do think... Um, yeah. Quillette and the contributors are really are filling a void in the market and hats off to everybody involved, especially the founder, Claire, is it Lamont? I'm not sure how you pronounce her last well, name. Layman, yeah. And I, I think it's brilliant. And I wish there were more outlets like that. I wish that this was actually, I'd like to see that this is the way that media starts to go in rather than mm. the... Uh, the traditional media but okay so so how did you get in on the ground floor there did you did you know claire in advance or i was kind of i didn't really know her but i was mutual followers with her on twitter for a while before she started quillette and i knew a couple of the people who contributed to it very early on um jamie palmer who's now what some kind of editor there right uh, was one of them. So I wrote a first piece for them, which got very politely rejected because it was just shite. <laughs> uh, and I think that was when I realized that writing articles was very different to writing blogs. Oh, God, yeah. Whereas in blogs, you're kind of, it's very digressive and you're figuring something out for yourself. Um, whereas when you're writing an article... You have to have much more structure and um, yeah, and more and, narrative and, flow. And you, I mean, I've tried writing articles, and it, it's probably something I could train myself to do, but I don't think I'd enjoy it. Uh, the one thing I always loved about blogs, and it's why I got disappointed when when a lot of the early blogs became very successful is they got less personal and more formal. And I always loved the personal thing about blogs. Honestly, on my blog, I'm really writing about myself. It's mm. me, it's what Tim thinks, it's my words, it's my feelings. And that's what I'm good at. I'm good at expressing that and thrashing ideas out. Whereas an article has to be a lot less about the author. It does, but there are also ways of integrating your personality into the articles. Which doesn't always work. I wrote a piece for a UK magazine that I won't name, which they edited. They just ruthlessly took out any ass element of character, right? Or kind of wit or um, humour out of it, and it just became this very robotic thing that a computer could have spat out, and doubtless will in the future. Yeah. But if you find the right editor, and Claire at Quillette is a great example of that, um, you can mix your personality into a more structured argument. Um, well, I, I, which has well, yeah. challenges. Sometimes I've written pieces which get too self-indulgent. Sometimes I've written pieces which are too formal. But it, you, you, you don't have to sacrifice personality. Not completely, uh, no. But I, I just found I, 
I've tried writing articles. I've submitted a few. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's not something that comes naturally to me. Whereas writing blog posts, it's like breathing. I mean, it's, it's effortless. I mean, <clears throat> I occasionally get asked, you know, how do you find the time? How do you do it? The blog post writes itself in my head and it takes me as long as it takes to type. And I type fast. So yeah. I'm, I'm usually, I remember I was walking into work thinking, right, what am I going to write today? Probably shouldn't say that actually. No, I was walking home from work thinking, what can I write today? Um, and and it, it's effortless. Whereas to write an article, it's work. I have to really sit down there and think about it and think, right, how, what, do, what do the audience want to see? What will the editor want? Um, and, and similarly, when I was writing the book and the book I'm writing now, it's effortless, 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 effortless. Um, it just comes out. I mean, I don't really, it's enjoyable. I'm sitting there creating these scenes and creating this story thinking, I'm enjoying this, this is great. But to write articles, oh, it's, ugh, it's it just doesn't come naturally. So it's a shame because that, that it would be articles that uh, they pay for, whereas blog posts and books, they don't. So, Yeah. I mean, I think it comes... Again, I don't want to big up. I had no idea. I couldn't comment on how good the articles I produce are. But just producing an article comes fairly naturally to me. Like you said, I figure it out in my head when I'm in the gym, when I'm shopping, when I'm cooking. And then I can sit down and hammer out a draft and play with it a bit. Well, well, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're... I, I think when I was young, I read a lot of columnists and not just like in the newspapers, but I used to read like old Bernard Levin um, collections or Christopher Hitchens collections or H.L. Mencken collections. So maybe that was, maybe that kind of trained me how to. Actually, that's very interesting you say that because in fact, that's the answer right there. And I'm amazed that it didn't come to me before. I've read very, very few newspaper articles. I generally don't read articles in newspapers. I skim through them. I've read loads and loads of blog posts and I've read an awful lot of books. And when yeah. I'm writing, when I, well, I've got my own blog style now, but at the beginning, there were certain bloggers I was really like their style. Peter Briffer, who, whose blog I discovered, he was the first blog I ever discovered years and years mm -hmm. ago, 2003 or something. And I liked his style, this sort of dry, sort of sarcastic, not very serious style. And there were a few others who I thought, well, this is good. This inspires me to write. And similarly, there's certain books that, and authors that inspired me to write. I've read them and I could read them again and again. Um, Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, P.G. Woodhouse. I read this and think this is just such genius. I, I, I want to do this. Whereas, yeah. new, and, and honestly, when I first started writing uh, stories, I was actually trying to copy the style of those authors, obviously very badly. But what it ended up doing is morphing into my own style. Whereas what I've never done is read, as you have, loads of really good newspaper articles so you can pick up the style you can pick up what makes a good article what doesn't so that's probably the difference yeah if you've gone through all that and you've read people like christopher hitchens yeah you probably do that enough and you'll work out subconsciously how to do it yeah that was it was that was probably the biggest influence um 
And you also have, I, I guess, one of the reasons my blogging was bad was working those influences out of my system. Like, I had a phase where all of my politics were the politics of Christopher Hitchens. And yep. then, then I used to read, when I became more left-wing, I used to read people like Noam Chomsky and <laughs> uh, a couple of blogs as well. Like, I don't know if you remember Lenin's Tomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, some other left-wing blogs. Which is why when I became more conservative and why now maybe I'm harder to pin down, I really consciously tried not to emulate people and to read a bigger variety of people so that I wouldn't again make the same mistake of just um, latching onto somebody else's cause. But but it's a process, isn't it? I mean, you... You, every I think every artist of any description. Um, okay, I was very pretentious calling ourselves artists, but any any you know what I mean. You, you start yeah. by imitating the people that you love. I mean, it's when you learn the guitar, you don't sit down and think I'm going to compose my own songs. You start playing yeah. the music you like, and if you get good enough, you then start going into your own stuff. And I doubt there's a musician who's ever lived that hasn't done that. Um, Absolutely. One of the things I worry about with blogs and with Twitter is you it's harder to for people to get that kind of private experimentation. Yeah. In the sense that lots of young people are now very publicly broadcasting what should be their formative experiences in working out what they think and how they're going to express it. But they're kind of investing themselves in that in those opinions and in that style. Yes, because uh, once you've made an opinion public, it's y your cognitive biases are much more invested in defending that opinion because you don't want to look stupid and you don't want to ruin whatever connections you've made. So I, yeah, I, part of me worries that artistically and uh, in politics and in literature, people are kind of digging themselves into a deeper hole now where everything is more public. Well, also, I think Twitter is a terrible medium to try and form anything because there's no style to it. Oh, there's a little bit. Some people like David Burge does a very good job of it. But it's the thing, with, at least with blogging, you could work out a style. Now, there were... What I try to be always, always is entertaining. You have to entertain. Yeah. You have to inform and entertain. Absolutely. Um, it's not enough just to inform because you may as well read Wikipedia. Now, now it can be yeah. if you're a specialist blog. Um, but also I saw it just as a way of like improving my writing, that a good piece of writing, a good turn of phrase, it looks absolutely brilliant. And if it's informative at the same time, people will come back and you have to practice it. It's like going to the gym or running or an instrument. You have to practice and you get better. Mm. And what I look for in blogs is, yeah, not only that the subject matter is interesting, but also that the writing's good. And I found a lot yeah. of, uh, there's a lot of blogs that are very informative, very interesting, but the writing is a bit, yeah, which is fair enough. I mean, each blog's different um, and I still read them. But if you get one with good writing, and then there were even some which were very entertaining. The writing was very good, but the subject matter was, uh, you know, left a lot to be desired you know but but yeah. it doesn't matter in fact one of the best pieces of writing out there and i 
I heard that this blog changed hands and that it was sold to someone else because certainly the quality of writing's gone down. But the early days of Chateau Hartiste, the oh, yeah. the pickup artist blog, you go back to 2008, 9, 10, it was fantastic writing. Now, you might not agree with the subject matter or the guy's opinions, but he had a turn of phrase that I thought, yeah, this is really good. Um, and, and I think if you want to become a writer, you have to do that. You have to pick your passionate subject and try to entertain and get the turns of phrases working, which you simply can't do on Twitter. Yeah, you, yeah. I think there are ways of making it entertaining on Twitter without compromising the subject matter. I mean, a lot of what I do in twi on Twitter is just jokes to entertain myself and hopefully entertain people. Look, you can, but I think there's a way of integrating. You can be a very entertaining Twitter person, but that's it. You're never going to develop beyond that. Whereas if you can oh, write... Oh, yeah, there's nothing terribly literary about it, that's true. Yeah, if you write very... Although I have seen people hop from Twitter accounts to books. I mean, I haven't read his book, but have, have you encountered the Bronze Age pervert phenomenon? <laughs> I've heard of it. I wasn't sure what it was. It took me like 10 minutes to work it out. I think I gave up, yeah. I've heard no, of it's it. very odd, but he's just he's the first example that came to mind of someone who was a Twitter personality and then produced a popular book. But definitely entertain, uh, entertainment or, or some kind of literary value is essential because yeah, and, and most people are hardworking people. They're not going to get to the end of the working day, put the kids to bed and then want to sit down and read an incredibly dry analysis of... EU politics. No, exactly. So you you have to you have to try and get laughs. You have to. And to be honest, I try to be a smart ass in my writing. I'm a smart ass by nature, anyway. And I, it's nothing that pleases me more when I find an opportunity to make some real smart ass remark, um, mm. which I know will get people laughing. That's what I like to do. Yeah. You know, just a kind of not particularly childish, just a real kind of. You know, <laughs> just just being a bit of a dick <laughs> while maintaining just enough integrity that people that people still take you seriously. And and I tried mm. to do that with uh, the character in my book. I mean, the I know you've read my book. There was a lot of experimentation in that. The first draft was a lot of kind of copying other people's styles, and that very quickly I could see that didn't work. And um, yeah, but it's 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 it was a it was a vehicle to experiment a lot. You know, what am I good at? What am I not good at? What can I do? And there was a few scenes in there where I made the character real. You know, be a real smart ass. Um, there was one scene I don't know if you remember where he's sitting with a load of uh, kind of hippies in New York, mm. and he says he's in charge of bulldozers. Um, they say, "What do you do in the oil business?" Oh, I'm in charge of bulldozers. Uh, and I actually say that in real life um, mm. when people ask me if they, you know, I get a disapproving look that I'm in the oil business. Say so I'm in charge of the bulldozers. We go in and clear <laughs> all, the, all, all, all the nature. Um, <laughs> and, and I quite, but again, it's kind of it, it's it's a vehicle for experimentation. You can you, you can you can work this out. And it took basically a, a novel length piece of work to thrash out a lot of that stuff. And I think now I'm much, much better. And I'm writing a book now with a much better storyline, a much mm. more um, classical storyline, which I think could sell. 
And no doubt when mm-hmm. I finish this and I publish that and I get the feedback, I'll look back and go, right, I can do much better again. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, we're, we're always pro- making progress. I mean, I'm sure even the bigger writers in the world always feel like they can top what they've done before. Well, of course. And the reason, one of the reasons I wrote that book, because I, I, I put on my blog, was that I reckon that if you're going to write a really, really good book, it's probably like your fourth or fifth one. Um, unless you're mm. some genius like Margaret Mitchell, who just knocks out Gone with the Wind when she's 26 years old. And I'm not that. Um, mm. You're going to have to work at it. And if you, if you read some of the early Raymond Chandler stuff, it's, uh, it's a bit hit and miss, to be honest. It was... I think he started writing his best stuff three or four books in. Um, so, but if your fourth or fifth book is going to be really good, well, you have to write books one to four. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I wrote three novels when I was younger, and at least the first two, I mean, I'd almost be embarrassed to clean up my dog's feces with them. They were so bad. Well, well, of uh, course, that's that's always the way. I mean, it's like teenage love poetry, but you, uh, oh, yeah. uh, or t- teenage love songs on the guitar. Um, <laughs> but the the thing is, what's really important is you have to get feedback. And yeah, I, I first I had to finish the book, and writing a book and publishing a book are two totally different things. And what I wanted to do is learn the entire process from writing the first word to it's on Amazon and you're getting money and you're getting feedback. And it's very important to understand, to interpret feedback so you know what you've done wrong and what you haven't. To be honest, the the most useful feedback you'll get is the silence. (laughs) That tells you everything. Someone says, I'm really interested in reading your book. Can you send it to me? You send it to them. You never hear from them again. Well, what's that telling you? Um, It's very good to know in advance what the flaws in your book are, which I did. Um, which is why I never really tried to push it on anybody. It was, it, but that process of writing to publishing, the whole thing from formatting, uploading in Amazon, getting the cover made, getting the editing done was really, really useful. And mm. if you don't get feedback, you won't learn. Even the silence is useful. Yeah. If you write a book and put it in your bottom drawer and write another one and put that on top of it, well, you're not, you, you might be learning something, but... Not half as much as if 500 people read it and tell you what they thought of it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because you might have the sense that it wasn't good enough, but you're unlikely to know specifically why it wasn't good enough. Look, uh, any, any book will. You need to any book from a half decent author will have good bits and bad bits. And mm. you need to play to the strengths and, and, and work out the weaknesses. I mean, my editor came back with a whole load of things. He, he wrote me a piece of A4 that said, this is what he thought was wrong with the story. And he was quite right. I mean, I knew that in advance. Um, I was trying something completely different in the hope that this would be some new genre of book and everyone would go, my, this is brilliant. Right, let's get a million copies of that. That didn't work, funnily enough. Um, so... Probably if I was more sensible, I'd have gone back, written it in a far more traditional way, um, mm. got a proper story arc in there rather than the abrupt ending and that kind of thing. But again, it was a throwaway story. It was like, right, well, this is my first one. Get that down. Put the lessons learned into the second one rather than trying to. The advice I got early on was don't try to perfect a masterpiece for 10 years. Write it, publish it next, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I mean, even great experimental authors have often had a more traditional background. Like, uh, obviously, this divides opinion. I think Ulysses is a great book. Okay. But James Joyce still had to write Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man before he uh, was prepared to write a book as experimental as Ulysses. Nobody's going to pick up the guitar and be Jimi Hendrix. Exactly. I mean, the Beatles were covering Chuck Berry before they started going into their experimental phase. That's what everyone does. I mean, they're, they're basically glorified cover bands until they get popular and they think, right, we've got some money and time and we can start exploring the musical talent. And, and probably the mistake I made was to try to do something very experimental from the off. But I was very realistic about the expectations. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't. Somebody wrote on my blog, actually that they knew someone who had, it's quite a funny comment, a mate, no, his brother-in-law had written a kind of fairly lame book about the history of this small town they lived in and ordered mm. 20,000 copies <laughs> that he was selling at 25 quid a go. I mean, I think the town population was about 5,000 or something. And I mean... This is this is just insanity. I was okay for a start. I I ordered like thirty copies, hard copies, just to dish out to people. Um, but yeah, the the editing process, the feedback uh, is to be honest, feedback and editing is very very painful for me. I don't oh, take yeah. criticism well. It, it's I'm immediately hackles rising, you know, defensive barrier up. It's it's difficult to yeah. take, and you have to learn to do that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I put out a little book this year and I'm sure if I read it back, it would be because I, I, I did it. It's not like I didn't edit it and I did get comments before I published it. But I think I was too, um, too keen to get it out there. Uh, but you didn't get it. You didn't get it professionally edited, did you? Which I don't blame you because it is expensive. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't. I wouldn't have had the money no exactly uh, um i i got my mum to edit it and she did an admirably ruthless job right uh, it's because actually what one of the things i'm glad i did even though it cost me 1500 bucks or 1600 us dollars is getting yeah. a professional editor gave me a lot of confidence in the book because people, yeah yeah because yeah, sure. a few people came in and said Oh, this bit, they criticised something about it. Um, a couple of scenes or a couple of bits. And I said, look, my editor was ruthless. He didn't pull any punches. He was a proper professional editor. And mm. if he'd have had a problem with it, he'd have said. Mm. And there were some bits. He said, look, this doesn't make sense. This is overly sentimental. Take this out. This is." And he had his overall comments. But it gave me a confidence that I'd gone in front of a professional who didn't pull his punches, who made some very good comments. And I thought, well, if he was all right with it, yeah, OK, I'm going to stand by that. So, all right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does give you that affirmation that you've... Uh... Well, just had a serious assessment done. Yeah, and, and, and actually, the, the, he ended up without a whole lot of work to do. Um, the real editing came when I put my... I don't know if you were reading my blog back then, or even if you still do, but there was a lot of... A lot of um, I put the first... I put an extract from the, the first draft on my blog, 
mm. thinking people are going to be blown away by this. They're going to think it's great. Oh, good grief. They absolutely tore into me in the comments. Yeah. And immediate yeah. suggestions for rewrites. Somebody's, and it was really good feedback. And I actually met a couple of the people who gave it to me. I met them in person when I had that meetup in London. And one guy, one of the best bits of feedback was, uh, I had two that I remember. One was, your efficiency in words is appalling. You're using <laughs> 20 words when you should be using eight. You could easily yeah. get rid of 50% of this. It's too long. Um, and another guy wrote, which again was brilliant advice. He said, you're, it's as if you've watched the scene on TV and you're now describing it to somebody else. He said, don't describe the scene, write the scene. And mm. cool, my ego here is taking a right kick in. Um, and I had another guy who I had a two-hour Skype call with, and he said, this is absolute shite, give up and start again, which, um, which was at the extreme end, which I took on board but ultimately ignored. Um, but it was... The thing is... I, I was I was glad that I seem to have developed a rapport with my readers that they feel comfortable about giving me robust feedback. I ask for it. Oh yeah, yes. And when I get it, it would be much worse if you had a bunch of people who told you it was great, and then when you published it, like you say, a resounding silence. Exactly. Um, so what I did after that, I rewrote the whole thing. I was paranoid. So I rewrote the whole thing and stripped out so many words. It went from 98,000 to 60,000. I then rewrote it again, which put it up to about 78,000. But by the end, I was... Somebody said to me that it should be as efficient as poetry. If you read good poetry, there's no spare words. So mm. I sat there, and I must have done this about two times for the entire book. I read each line out loud stood across the room mm -hmm. as if I was addressing an audience in a public square and seeing how it flowed and seeing how it went. And I was so paranoid. Yeah, good, By the time it was... That's would, a good yeah. thing to do. Is, less is more is almost always the best exactly. tactic. So by the time it went to the editor, he had no words to cut out. He had no... <laughs> Um, he didn't say all this is redundant, take that out, what's this? The efficiency of words was very good. And I mm. think the biggest, so a lot of his, most of his work was actually sort of consistency and formatting and commas and stuff. Um, so the conclusion I reached at the end of it, and I think this is borne out from the, the comments, the feedback I've got, is that the, the style and the quality of writing was very good. But the the story and the character development, particularly the uh, accessory, the not the accessory, the secondary characters, wasn't nearly good mm. enough. Which I took as encouragement because I'd rather have you can write in a very good, efficient, professional style, but the story's crap than the story's good, but you can't write for shit. Yeah, yeah, because that's a, the style is the foundation that you build on. Yeah. Uh, so it's a necessary uh, element of what comes after. Whereas a great story with a terrible style would be a beautiful house that collapses. Yeah, or it would be uh, the Da Vinci Code. <laughs>
Yeah, which is a great example of um, redundant words, especially adjectives. There's a, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. The famous first line is renowned professor. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I don't know what the editor Rather. was thinking. Well, I don't doubt he cares. He's probably on his yacht drinking his gin. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> why, why does that's he what, It's always adjectives. That's the worst. If I was ever teaching creative writing, my first piece of advice would be, is just think is every adjective necessary uh, absolutely because absolutely and, the most painful element of bad writing and, and the adverbs now my editor told me to get rid of quite a few adverbs um mm. he was quite hardcore in saying you should never have them but i actually i left a few in at the end i thought you know it's my book um and i did leave a few in but he was definitely right that you you shouldn't be you should be conveying as much as possible the yeah. feelings and and the other thing he told me, the editor was really good at he said don't assume your audience is stupid they can figure this out you don't need to spoon feed them and he told me to yeah if you have a scene where somebody is in danger you don't need to say he ran quickly because exactly if you communicated that he's in danger no one's gonna wonder if the idiot started running slowly across the street yeah and, uh, and he said you can he said you're building up he was saying look you're this this sentence is or these words aren't necessary because the reader knows how the guy's feeling or he knows what the situation mm. is here you know the reader knows what the situation is here they're not stupid he said have more faith in your audience so you can mm. really leave stuff which to you you think is ambiguous but the editor will say well no not at all i'm, I'm following this um and the really good job the editor does is tell you can he follow it is this clear am i confused i'm not sure who's speaking here hang on now now this is i'm confused and there was a bit of that um but again that's that's the confidence that an editor will give you if he's gone through that you know that there's no bit in there which everyone's going to be scratching their heads thinking Hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because he's going to probably going to be your most critical reader, sir. So. Well, you're paying him to be. Yeah. You're paying him to be, yeah. and and again, it's it's a bit like the feedback I got on my blog. You can't ask for feedback and then get all shirty with them for giving it to you. Mm. So suck it up. You know, now you don't have to take all of it on board. You can, you have to dismiss the outliers, you know, and just say, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to ignore this. But, you know, if 30 people are saying the same thing or, you know, your regular uh, commenters are saying, this is what I think, then, um, okay. Mm -hmm. and, and as you have, to, you have to acknowledge, it's a work in progress, the best thing to see, you know. And I learned so much from writing something I thought was good, sticking in front of a thousand blog readers and they came back and went, this is absolute shite. <laughs> and I tell you what, that I learned more from that than I think anything else I've done. <laughs> well, that was a very healthy attitude to take because I think a lot of people would have just deflated like a sad balloon. And It was tempting. Uh, it was tempting. There was a moment of crisis that night where I thought I was going to give up and I talked to my friend and she said, no, no, you, you know, you can't do that. You know, it's, it's salvageable. Um, yeah, and but it, but it, it let me know I wasn't anywhere near at the standard where I had to be, mm. and 
I'm probably never going to be until I've got a book which sells well and people go, yeah, this is pretty damn good. It's a good story. It's written well. This is a solid piece of work. Good effort, you know. <laughs> and, and that's where I want to be. And like with anything, it's a, it's a process. Um, yeah. It's a learning curve. Uh... And yeah, I think as a writer, that's one of the hardest things to overcome. Certainly when I've written articles before, um, the feedback from the editor and the changes made by the editor are always hard to stomach. It is. I mean, also sometimes there's a difference between uh, constructive criticism and uh, either just kind of arrogant dismissal, which you can get, or sometimes as well, especially with articles, they'll just have this house style, yeah, which is very restrictive, and they're not actually telling you what they're doing wrong. They're just saying, we don't do it this way, we do it this way. Which they have the right to do. Sure. But it would be tempting to just say, all right, I'm going to um, be very formal and impersonal and uh, tedious, really just to fit in with this style. Uh, yeah, and it, so you need to identify what's trying to make you better and what's just trying to make you the same as everybody else. And I, I guess it's, it, it's interesting because when they're hiring a writer to write a piece or paying for a piece, it's kind of what they're getting is an amalgamation between the author's words and what they want him to say. Mm. It's Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's if if you're, you know, it's always it's when you're a freelance anything. It's hang on a minute, are you hiring me because you want me to give you my work, or am I just a robot that you want to tell me what to do? And I guess freelance writing is somewhere in the middle. You know, they're telling you what they want, but at the same time, you have some leeway to uh, to put your own spin on things. Absolutely, and it's it's not just with style; that's with the argument as well. Sometimes. I've had commissions and they'll give you like a quite a general pitch like, oh, we want you to write an article about this subject. Uh, and then when you get the comments back, they're kind of saying, hmm, maybe, yeah, we were kind of looking for something more confrontational here. And you think, what does confrontational actually mean in this context? And they should tell you up front what the requirements are as best as possible. There's no point just saying, you know, there's no point telling you that after you've written it. No, no. But you, are, you, you, you wonder whether that was, like, whether they're saying there's a problem with the way you've written it or whether they're saying we, we wanted a different argument. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the, so I guess the problem... I guess it's a, it's a difficult balance. The problem is, as well, if you, get, if you have a certain style that you develop, and people like, and you can sell that, is when the editors change. In fact, if you, if you have a long career in um, freelance writing, which I hope you do, um, you'll probably find that. You, you'll find at some point, if Quillette gets big, they sell out, someone else takes over, suddenly the style change. Tim Wurstel found this, because Tim Wurstel has a, has a unique style. He writes in a certain yeah. way that isn't entirely serious, but makes very serious, well, easily to, easy to remember points, which he repeats so that any of his readers knows quite a lot about the subject quite quickly. 
but he uses this particular style, which I think was very popular with some people. I think he was writing at the Register and at Forbes. And then suddenly, all you know, there's a change in editorial team and they don't like this anymore. And they say, this isn't what we want. But that's pretty much all he can write. I'm not saying that he, he you know, he's, he's a one trick pony, but that was his stock in trade. That's what he was very good at. He was known for. And suddenly a few changes in an editorial board and, and no one wants you anymore. Yeah, it's, I imagine it's tough. I mean, on one hand, you can't be too prissy. Like, um, definitely when I started, if people would make, like, the odd change, I could be quite kind of defensive and think, how dare they mess with my beautiful child? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and you learn to realise that, A, often they're making very good changes, which have made your article better, but also be just like it just on, on some level it is a collaborative process um, and they are publishing after all so if you want your work completely untouched just start a blog well yeah and that, that that's yeah. kind of why I, I turn down requests to write articles for for other people I'm just like not that I get many I'm not claiming the times is banging down my door um, yeah. I have complete ownership of it. And I actually, when I wrote my book, I was um, I was thinking, do I try and go the normal publishing route? And I, I decided very early, no, because no one's going to be interested in this. Although I did show it to an agent who confirmed that. Um, but I've heard from published authors that one of the most difficult things is, in if you go the traditional publishing route, is the editor is often someone totally unqualified who is a relative of someone high up in the publishing house. And you can literally end up with a 25-year-old media studies graduate who's the daughter yeah. of somebody well-connected. And she is tearing your book apart, saying, oh, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this. And mm. they can totally trash your book. I think for a full novel, I would really struggle to have somebody else edit it. To, to to make major yeah. changes I think I would really a novel yeah um, which is why it's good to go to a you know why uh, you know you go to a professional guy you at least know that he's professional and he's that's what he does for a living rather than somebody who's just there because they're well connected yeah and also if you're self-publishing you have the option to say actually I like it how it is whereas I'm sure if you're going the traditional route there's probably some back and forth between writer, agent, editor, publisher, but to some on some level, you're going to have to accept changes because yep. that's what they want to make it more marketable or just because they prefer it. Well, it's all, also when you're freelance, you can you can choose yeah you can choose your editor and you have to find one that suits you. I mean, I looked for I looked over for quite a few editors. Um, decided I wanted a man, decided I wanted an American. Uh, because I'm, I'm British, I wanted to get an American sort of view on it. And I, I got him to edit it in American English, thinking this would be a massive seller and there's more Americans than Brits. Um, the next one I'll do in British English, but I'll probably use the same editor. Um, but you have mm. to look, there's a lot of women out there. I looked at all the freelance editor sites. There's thousands of women, all 25, 26, all writing nice liberal left-wing stuff on blogs and stuff like this and writing their own novels on 
you know, the travails of feminists. And I thought, this is no good for me. I need to find a, a guy who is seems to be open-minded enough to criticise where necessary, but is also going to be quite robust. So, yeah. so I approached two or three editors and I, I made that point to them. I said, this is the topic. So I don't need you to be angry at the story. Because you imagine if I'd given that yeah. book to a 25-year-old feminist, she'd have spent half the time being pissed off at the main character. And me. Yeah, you don't want someone to impose their ideology onto it. Like, Yeah, and this editor... You want someone who's going to be objective about how it's done, but not uh, opinionated about, you know, is this appropriate? Is this... Exactly. Is this... So the guy I found seemed... He he did an excellent job, and it's good, because um, if he hadn't, I'd have probably had to go and find somebody else. But he, he did a great job, so I wouldn't hesitate to use him again, simply because he, he did exactly what I asked him to. Um, but then again, the whole edi editorial process was different than I thought it was. I mean, yeah, you, you learn this stuff. I mean, you know, you come out of the end of that, and you get feedback you didn't think you'd get. And there's other feedback which you thought you'd get, which you don't get. It was a bit odd. Um, <clears throat> there's no real opportunity to discuss stuff once he's done the main job. That's it. It's there, there, there's the final. There's the, my draft. Bye. Um, so, and you, you either you either accept it or not. But I think in a publishing house, yeah, you're assigned an editor, and yeah, you better hope you get a good one who understands. Yeah. This this is all. I remember what I said to him. Now you need someone who gets you and gets the character and who you are and the story you're trying to tell. They have to. Yeah, get you, that. you need someone who understands your intention, uh, and whether you fulfil that intention. Yeah, and 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 enhances what the author is trying to do rather than change what the author is trying to do. Um, mm. And I guess that's similar for yeah articles and all kinds of freelance writing. I mean, it's quite delicate. It's probably why I could never do it. I mean, the thing about the blog is I have complete editorial control. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've had few really bad experiences. I, actually, I haven't had any really bad experiences. I've had few occasions where I felt like the editor has substantially um, decreased the value of what I've produced. Um, because I tend to look for, whenever I'm submitting somewhere, I make sure it's not necessarily somewhere where they're going to agree with my opinions, but somewhere that has... A diversity of styles or a diversity of themes. Yep. Uh, somewhere where people I respect have written for before. Because then I have at least some confidence that I'm going to have a good relationship with whoever edits it. Um, See, I, I liked your book review that you did of uh, Max Boot's book. I thought I thought that was very good. I, re I really enjoyed that. And um, so had you read many book reviews before? We talked before about how you've read loads of articles, which you think might be why you're good at writing them now. But is, is a book review something you've read a lot of? Oh, yeah, a lot of them. Again, uh, Christopher Hitchens's, Martin Amos's, um James Woods, George, I've no idea how to pronounce his name, George Skialaber or something. Right. Uh, lots and lots of book reviews. Uh, I think it, when I was young, I read too many book reviews and not enough books, which I don't do now. But uh, for some reason, I was always interested in reading them, partly just because it's fun 
like obviously my review of Max Boots book was a bit of a hatchet job and there's just a kind of mean delight that you get from reading someone's book be completely trash. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I, to be honest, I think, you know, I mean, look, um, unless you're do, unless you're doing um, unless you're, you're being insincere, you thought it was good, but it will be cool to trash it, which I don't believe you do. Um, yeah, I mean, look, he's put it out there in the public for people to look at and comment on. I mean, look, you've got, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. If you're going to perform in public Absolutely. and someone doesn't like it, well, you've got to take your licks, you know. And, and if someone decides they're going to use your product to be a smart ass and showcase their writing talents, well, fair enough. You know, it's, 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 it's tough. It's a, it's a rough world out there. Absolutely. People can take it too far. Like there used to be this critic called Dale Peck who wrote for the New Republic. And you could tell that just being mean about books became his shtick. Right. So he he was almost looking for excuses to trash people's book and be especially mean because that was his persona. And also, look, there's... But generally, yeah, yeah it's healthy. There's, all, there's never too little pomposity in the world. So there's always... Uh, an opportunity to prick somebody's self-righteousness or overconfidence. Yeah, and if you're if you're a confident author, you'll just laugh it off or think it's quite funny. Yeah. Um, and also, look, there's also a, a, a big uh, power balance thing. I mean, if the if somebody who's well employed and well known in the New York Times is trashing some new author's book unnecessarily, that's one thing. Yeah. But ben Six Smith taking the piss out of Max Boot. Well, I haven't got a problem yeah. with that. <laughs> no. I'm afraid I have to get going now, man. I've got a uh, uh, boatload of Christmas shopping to do before work. That's no problem. Okay, well, thanks. I've really enjoyed this. Um, no, and yeah, I've enjoyed it too. Hopefully, hopefully, my listeners uh, will enjoy it as well. I'm sure they will. No, it's been it's it's been great. So, so thanks for having you. Uh, thanks for uh, coming on. And uh, thanks for having me on, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Well, yeah. So that's it for this week then. Um, thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.